Good morning, everyone. We're glad to see you here, whether you're here with us in person or joining us on the live stream. I encourage you, if you're not there already, to turn to Matthew chapter 25. As we continue in our series, I so appreciated Chris unpacking for us Matthew chapter 24 and the, the hope and the anticipation that we have in the return, the second coming of Christ. Now, just by context, we're here in the book of Matthew, and this is the fifth discourse or the fifth teaching unit in the book. And this is the final teaching unit, and in fact, the final chapter of the final teaching unit. And what Jesus has been emphasizing here is how to live as kingdom citizens in light of his imminent coming. So there's a theme of watchfulness, of expectation and anticipation. But in the immediate context, in chapter 24, Jesus has explained to his disciples when they said, what will be the signs of your coming, that there will be considerable time and trouble that will happen before that takes place. As a result, they are to constantly be alert and prepared, anticipating his coming, but not knowing when it will be. I'm reminded of, of the training that a firefighter has to go through in order to, to be a firefighter. They're going to train and they're going to prepare, but they never know when the emergency is going to happen. When I was a student at Cedarville, my roommate Travis was a volunteer with the Cedarville Fire Department. And so whenever he was anywhere, he had his pager with him. And I can remember at 2 o'clock in the morning or in the middle of a meal at Chuck's, all of a sudden that pager would go off and he would drop everything and go. Because he, it wasn't a matter of if there was going to be an emergency, but when it was going to happen. And so he was constantly living in this state of, of preparedness, knowing that he may have to respond to that emergency. And that's in essence what Jesus is calling us to do, is to be prepared for his coming, to make sure that we ourselves are ready. And even in the immediate context, Jesus has told a parable saying that the arrival of the king will be unexpected. And therefore, we need to be faithful and diligent about the task he has given us until he comes again. And so Jesus is going to tell us two parables and, and then a judgment parable, if you will, at the very end of this chapter. And then these parables are pointing us ahead to how we anticipate the coming of Christ the King. Let's begin in chapter 25, verse 1. It says, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So this first parable is going to emphasize that we have to be prepared for his coming. So the, the wedding customs that are here would have been that typically a groom would go and become engaged to his future bride. And that in that moment, they would come to an agreement, and by all accounts, they'd be considered married, but that groom still had to prepare a place for them to live. And so he would say, I'm going to prepare a place for you, and once I've prepared a place for you, then I will come so that where I am, there you may be also. Does that language sound familiar? You see, the groom would not, the bride would not know when the groom was coming, but she'd be waiting in expectation that one day when the final preparations had been made and that day had come, the groom would come in a processional of all her family and friends, often in the evening with torchlight and music and singing, and that there would be a simple wedding ceremony and then days of celebration that the groom had finally come. 
And so in our story, these ten young women were apparently called to be a part of the processional. Their responsibility was to have torches ready in order to lead the processional to the bride's home for the wedding and then on to the banquet hall. But the text tells us here that of those ten, five were foolish and five were wise. Because when the foolish took their lamps or their torches, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. So although the text here says lamps, I believe probably what is here is a torch because it was for a processional. So it would have been a a piece of wood with a, a rag wrapped around it. But then what they would do is they'd soak that rag in oil. And that with that oil, it would burn for about 15 minutes, and then they would need to pour more oil on for it to continue to burn. And so some of these ladies were wise. They brought enough oil so that even if the master was delayed, they'd have plenty for it to burn. But what I want you to notice is that five of them were foolish and took no oil at all. It wasn't that they didn't bring extra oil. It was that they had no oil. And so there was a delay when the bridegroom was coming, and so they all fell asleep. Notice the text doesn't condemn them for that. All, both the wise and the foolish, fell asleep. But at midnight, verse 6, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came. And those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast. And the door was shut. You see, it's in the middle of the night. The bridegroom was delayed, and someone calls out, He's here! He's coming! And so all of them wake up and through bleary eyes grab their torches and begin to repair it. They wrap the rag and, and begin to soak it in oil. But it's here that the five foolish young women realize the gravity of their mistake. As they begin to try to, to light their torch, it's flickering and going out. And in desperation, they turned to those who were wise, who had made adequate preparations, and said, share some of your oil with us. And the women say, well, if we do that, then there won't be any torches, for all of our torches will go out. Instead, you need to go and buy the oil, make the preparation that you should have made in the first place. And so you can feel the urgency of the story as these women take their torches and wander through the night trying to find the sellers of oil to buy some. But while they're gone, the bridegroom comes. And those five wise women proceed with their torches to the banquet hall, and then the door is shut. After those ladies had finally gotten their oil, they they come now. In verse 11, afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. You see, the tragedy is these women were invited to the feast. They fully anticipated being involved in the feast, but they made no preparation to participate in it. So they had been invited and expected to participate in it, but they never even prepared for it. And when they finally arrived, they found that the door was closed. The opportunity had ended. And Jesus is pointing out that they had not made the preparation that they should have. Now, before you go too hard on these ladies, okay, I want you to think about something. How many of you have ever run out of gas? All right, raise your hands. How many of you have ever run out of gas in your car? All right. 
I won't ask, but probably some of us have run out of gas multiple times in our car. And the reality is we have no excuse, right? We have a gauge right there that tells us how much is there. And depending on what type of car you have, a light comes on and then a bell rings and then like a countdown. You have 20 miles until you're empty. You have 10 miles until you're empty. And then all of a sudden you run out of gas and you're like, how did this happen? I don't know how I ran out of gas. Let me suggest to you that when we run out of gas, it's because of three simple mistakes that we make. First of all, we ignore the warning signs. Oh, sure, the gas light's on. But you know what? I've had times where my gas light came on and I drove 30 more miles. And I think it's cheaper across town. So I'm just going to keep on driving. Secondly, we have false confidence. You know what? I'm confident that I'm going to be able to make it where I need to or make it to the gas station. I probably was just parked on a hill. It's not really as low as it looks like it is. And third, we assume we have plenty of time. I'm sure there will be a gas station right around the next corner. I'm sure I'm not going to run out. After all, there's no signs of trouble here. My car's not sputtering or, or stalling until all of a sudden we run out of gas. You see, I believe that we make this mistake spiritually all the time. First of all, we ignore the warning signs. Over and over, Scripture warns us to be prepared to not be lulled into complacency by this world, but to live as kingdom citizens, anticipating our future hope and not just living for fulfillment today. And yet so often our hearts gravitate to what is easy and convenient and pleasurable for us in the moment. We have false confidence. We look to our own righteousness or we compare ourselves to other people and we say, well, you know what, if God's gonna let people in, I'm certainly gonna get in before those people over there. Or I'm certainly more moral or religious than most. And we assume we have plenty of time. I mean, Jesus hasn't come back yet, so I can live how I want to now, and then later on in my life, I'll begin to get really serious about what it means to walk with him. You see, if we look at this text, we see our own reflection in the example of these foolish women. Because they were living for the moment and not anticipating and prepared for the return of the groom. But the tragic thing here is, they come and they knock on the door and they say, Lord, Lord, open to us. We want to come in. We've now made the preparations we should have made in the first place. What does verse 12 say? But he answered and said, truly I say to you, I don't know you. Now here's where the parable begins to actually transfer into real life, because it's the same language that's used in Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, where Jesus describes the last judgment, where some people will say, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name and do many good works in your name? They're going to point to all their deeds and religious works, and Jesus is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. The return of Christ will be sudden and unexpected, and those who have prepared will be welcomed in, and those who have not be shut out. There is no middle ground. There's a couple points I want us to notice here that are going to be themes that run through these parables. First of all, there are two groups that will easily and quickly be divided when Christ returns. Those who come in and those who are shut out. Those who are rewarded and those who are condemned. Those who are judged and those who are accepted. But the second thing I want us to notice is it's not easily immediately clear 
who those people are. Up to that point, these ten women all had their torches. They all were waiting. But it was only when the bridegroom arrived that the difference between the groups was immediately apparent. And the tragic reality here is these women thought that they would be participants in the banquet. They thought of anyone that they would be there with the groom. That leads us to think about this point. There are people who look like Christians and associate with Christians who will be shocked to realize they never were Christians. Friends, let's just take a moment to recognize that could be me. You see, he isn't talking about the the pagans around the world who are bowing down and worshiped idols. He's not talking about those who look so clearly as atheists or agnostics that they're rebelling against God. He's talking about the respectable, the religious, who think that they are in. But when Christ returns, we'll realize not only that they are outside of the kingdom, but that it is too late. They have passed the point of no return. And so in verse 13, he says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. What I want you to notice about this story is Jesus is saying with great clarity and urgency, be prepared for the coming of Christ. But what's the one thing he doesn't tell us? How to do that. What do we have to do to be prepared? That's where we have to keep on reading. And we come to the next parable of the talents. Now this is a parable that you're probably very familiar with that I want us to understand within the context in which Jesus spoke it. First of all, let me make something clear. In the text, talent isn't used in the way that we use it in our English word, that is a skill or ability that you might have, but rather it was a measure of money. And actually, a very large measure of money, a talent was about how much a common laborer might make over 20 years, a half of a lifetime of work. So however you want to factor that in terms of our present-day wages, you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars. And so with that context, let's begin in verse 14. For it will be like a man on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability, and then he went away. Let's pause there for a moment. This is an image that would have been familiar to the Israelites of that day, where there was someone who owned the land and had servants or slaves, more accurately, to whom he would entrust his property to care for it in his absence. And so this man is going on a journey. He's going to be away for an undefined period of time. And so he entrusts to his slaves a portion of his property. It still belongs to the master, but it's to be stewarded by these slaves. To one, he gives five talents, an enormous amount of money. It would take over two lifetimes for an average worker to make this much. To another, he gives two talents, and to another, he gives one talent. He apparently distributes the talents on the basis of their capability to steward them well. But notice that he doesn't give any instructions. He doesn't say, here's what I want you to do with it. Because in that day, slaves were to know their master so completely and have internalized his will so personally that when they would go to do business for him, they would understand his character and how he would act in that moment. So it's clear that the master wants them to put this money to work in order to get a profit, to be profitable servants. And so then he goes away in verse 15. 
In verse 16 we read, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the five talents, or two talents, made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Notice the way that each one responds. The first two respond with eagerness and initiative. They know exactly what they need to do, and they get to work. They recognize that these resources have been given to them for a limited amount of time, and that they will be accountable for how they've used them. And so they immediately get to work, which would have involved doing business and making trades. That would have been hard work. It also would have been risky work. Back then, there wasn't a way that you could just put it in the stock market and hope that it would earn 10% over a period of time. No, they had to make trades and do business in a shrewd and wise way. But the third man, he was fearful. He was cautious. And so instead of investing and working, he dug a hole in the ground and hid his money. He was trusting that the master would be as happy with the return of his investment as he would be with the return on his investment. And so then the master comes. And Jesus is a masterful storyteller as he begins to, to build the tension and the anticipation verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. Let me just pause here for a moment. This is pointing us to the fact that when Jesus comes back, we will be accountable to him for how we have stewarded the resources and the opportunities that he has given us. Because we are not the owners of our resources. We are not the masters of our lives. We are stewards. And whatever you have been entrusted with, you will be accountable for. And so whether you are a leader or a worker or a person who is serving in any capacity, you will be held accountable for how you have used and stewarded what God has entrusted to you. Now in verse 20 it says, And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents here. I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. So we see, first of all, the example of the faithful servants. Because the master had given his slaves resources and responsibility to carry out the master's work for as long as he was gone. And when he comes to the faithful servants, the first one says, I have taken your five talents and earned five talents more. And the second one says, I've taken your two talents and earned two talents more. They both had doubled the master's investment. And so these slaves take the personal initiative and work diligently to please the master. What I want you to notice is their reward. Their reward is not, way to go, you get a vacation. Way to go, you don't have to work any longer. He says, because you have been faithful, you have been a good and faithful servant, you will be entrusted with more. I will set you over much. These words, good and faithful, have to do both with their character and their competence. Their faithfulness to serve the master and their diligence in doing so. And so the first one he says, I will set you over more, enter into the joy of your master. 
But I want you also to notice the second one who had earned two talents more, he receives the exact same reward. Because he was faithful with what he had been given, he receives both more responsibility and the joy of the master. I think this helps us to understand a little bit about the kingdom of God. That as we serve faithfully in the kingdom, our reward is not relaxation and ease, but rather greater responsibility. That as we are faithful, God entrusts us with more and more as a privilege of serving him. But the greatest reward is to enter into the joy of your master. You see, a true slave lives only for the pleasure of the master, only lives to hear those words, well done, my good and faithful servant. And so these two men had been faithful in doing what they were called to do, and they were rewarded with more responsibility and the master's joy. But that's what provides us such a clear contrast then in verse 24. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you'd be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But the master answered him and said, You wicked, slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who, is, who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. It's kind of a confusing part of the story, isn't it? You see, this one who had one talent has buried it in the ground, and he brings it to the master, and he says, I knew that you were a hard man, reaping where did you, not, you did not sow. In other words, I knew what type of a master you were, a heartless, greedy, grasping despot. And so I didn't want to risk losing what was yours, and so I didn't. I brought it right back to you. You see, we can kind of reason that this servant might have said, if I were to earn a profit, I don't get to share any of it. But if I lose the master's money, then I'm going to be in trouble with the master. But notice, who is he living for in that moment? Himself. He's living for his own protection, his own pleasure. And so he starts with an accusation against the master and an excuse for himself. And so he brings this excuse to the master, but notice what the master says in verse 26. You wicked, slothful servant. He says, if you really thought that that was my character that I was so exacting and demanding, expecting a profit, then it would have changed the way you lived. It would have resulted in a different pattern of behavior. But it didn't. In fact, you demonstrated laziness and selfishness. You didn't even invest the money, but you buried it. And so I'm going to take what was given to you, and I'm going to give it to the one who already has ten talents, because he's demonstrated he will use it well. So the slave makes excuses for his failure and accuses the master of being harsh and unreasonable. But what I want you to notice is that he is condemned not fundamentally because of what he did or didn't do, but because he didn't know the master. You see, the master in the story has demonstrated that he is not harsh or greedy or grasping. In fact, as the one had made more money, he entrusts it back to him 
that he now has ten talents to invest or four talents to invest. He welcomes them in his joy and he congratulates them for their faithfulness. But this servant never knew or trusted the master, which is why he refused to serve him. You see, there's a danger when we're reading in these parables in Matthew 25 of thinking Jesus is just telling us we need to do and do and do. We need to work harder and strive longer because if Jesus comes back and we're not working hard enough, then we're going to be in big trouble, mister. That's not the point. This is not a guilt-driven obedience. It is a grace-driven obedience that's rooted in relationship. Such that these other slaves eagerly went out to serve the master because they longed to hear him be pleased with their service, whereas the other refused. But now look at verse 30. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is talking about hell here. This is something that evangelical Christians don't talk nearly enough about, I, I believe. Not that we ought to be talking about it in a gleeful way, in an excited way that some people are going to be suffering in this way, but with a sense of holy urgency that those who don't know Christ will be condemned apart from him to suffer in eternity with hell, in hell. But it also ought to sober us what is it that led this man to be condemned to hell? It wasn't idolatry. It wasn't adultery. It was faithlessness, selfishness, and laziness. You see, those are the respectable sins. Those are the things that we feel like we can still kind of get away with and still be a part of the kingdom of God. But Jesus is warning us that we need to be diligent to do what God has called us to as we wait in preparation. Can you feel the urgency building in these stories? Make sure you're prepared. Make sure you're doing what God has called you to do. But the question you ought to be asking is, what is that? Jesus, show us what we need to do. Before we get there, let me give us one application question to consider. What am I doing for Christ and his kingdom with the resources and the opportunities that he has given me. You see, God has given every one of us resources and opportunities. The opportunity to serve in the church, to steward responsibility in our family, in our marriage, and ultimately in his kingdom. If the church were a business, and you were the employees, and your annual review came around, what would it say? How have you been serving? Where is the work being done? Now notice that this is not work based on our, our wanting to earn God's favor, but rather in response to the grace that he's already given us. Let me give us two applications of this that I think might be personal, but I think they're also very practical. First of all, let me talk about retirement for a moment. You see, many people in evangelical Christianity imagine that retirement is kind of a preparation for heaven in that we work and work and then we finally get to rest. You know, we, we work for our 40 years or 45 years or however longer it, long it is, but once we've worked for that long, then now it's finally our time to kick back and take it easy. But if we understand this parable for what it means, heaven is not an eternal glorified vacation. Rather, heaven is an opportunity to devote ourselves 
fully to the work that is most important in service of God for all of eternity. And the greater our faithfulness here on earth, the greater our scope of responsibility there in heaven. And if we rightly understand that perspective on eternity, then as we reach the age of retirement, we ought to not be asking, how can I relax and finally do the things I want to do? But rather, how can I focus and use this unique season of life to maximize my ministry impact for the sake of the kingdom until Jesus calls me home? Can I tell you that as I've gotten to know the members of our church family, there are so many beautiful models of this. I go down to Second Act, which is one of my kids' favorite places to go, by the way. And it's full of volunteers from our church family, many of whom are at retirement age who say, I'm going to continue serving with every opportunity that God has given me. Many who are continuing to go on missions trips and serve in a variety of ways. Because when you reach retirement age, you have unique resources. You have the wisdom that comes through years of maturity and experience. You have greater financial flexibility and freedom. You have a flexibility of your schedule to be able to invest it for the kingdom. And so for every one of us, let's think ahead to our retirement years, not as a time to hit the golf course, but rather as a time to finish the course. That just as a racer, when you're nearing the finish line, doesn't begin to slow up and coast, but rather presses with every ounce of energy to cross the finish line and finish well. Secondly, there are times, I believe, here in our church family, as I've begun to get to know our church family, that somebody might be sitting here on a Sunday morning and think, they don't really need me. They've got musicians that sing way better than I can. They've got teachers that know way more than I do. They've got people that are way better with kids than I ever could be. So I'm just going to be an observer rather than a participant. Friends, I understand why it might feel that way. But let me just say very clearly, we need you. We need you to be engaged and involved. We need to be using your gifts, not just here in our church, but in your family, to love your wife or love your husband and lead your kids, to pray for our missionaries, to be engaged in evangelism with your neighbors. Every one of us have been given responsibilities and abilities to steward, and we need to steward them well. So let's be aware of the danger of passivity, and rather than stepping back, step forward and press in to the opportunities that God has given us. Now we come in verse 31 to the final paragraph, and it's a sobering one. It's a final judgment and the central requirement. We begin in verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people from one another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Here the images of Christ in the final judgment. This is language taken from Daniel chapter 7, Zechariah chapter 14, verse 5. Of the king who sits on his throne to judge the nations, it will be a terrifying, holy moment. And I have to imagine that the disciples, when they hear the Son of Man comes in glory, sitting on a throne, they're leaning in, right? Okay, this is what we've been waiting for. We want to hear about it. But instead of describing the glory that they will enjoy, there's a warning that's implied here as he separates the people gathered before him into two groups. The sheep will be on his right, the place of favor, and the goats on his left. This would have been a very common image where a shepherd would often have both sheep and goats out in the pasture. And if you were to look from a distance, they would be virtually indistinguishable. 
But when evening came, they would be separated. The sheep would go into the sheepfold, and the goats would go into their own pen. And so one by one, the shepherd, knowing each one, would put them where they belong. And it is this sorting that warns us and gives us the clear answer to the question we've been asking. How do we be prepared for the coming of the king? Because these previous two parables have warned us that if we are not rightly prepared, we will be excluded, that we will be judged. Notice what it says then in verse 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you are blessed by my father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. What I want you to notice in verse 34 is that the king says to those who are on his right, come you who are blessed by my father. You see, this is language of relationship. Those who are welcomed into the kingdom are those who have a relationship with the king. He says, inherit the kingdom. This is an inheritance language prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So Jesus is saying those who are welcomed in have a relationship on the basis of God's sovereign initiative. He is the one who planned and prepared our salvation. He's the one who initiates it as we respond in repentance and faith. We are then accepted into his presence on the basis of Christ's sacrifice. But now the rest of these verses might be a little confusing along those lines because it goes on to describe all the good works that they had done. And if we're not careful, we might read this and say, oh, well, in order to get into heaven, we'd better make sure our good works resume is as good as it needs to be. So that when he goes down through all these things, when we stand before him, he'll say, okay, you've made the grade you make the cut to come in. But what I want us to understand is that all these acts of mercy, these deeds of compassion that people might do, are not the basis of our acceptance in Christ, but rather the result of it. That as we are loved by God, as we experience his unconditional acceptance and forgiveness, we then turn and relate to others according to his character. They are actually called the righteous here in verse 37 because they are righteous based on the righteousness of Christ. And because they have been loved by God, they can't help but respond to God in service of others. And so those who are accepted are kingdom citizens. And God welcomes those who are rightly related to him and transformed by his love. Their loving service for others is not the cause of their right relationship with God, but rather the effect. If we're not careful, we might read this and think that we get in based on our good works and our deeds, but that's not the point here. Rather, when we stand before God, the question will be, have you rightly related to Christ? Have you responded with repentance and faith? And if you have, the natural outflow and outworking of that ought to be love for others. 
In John chapter 13, verse 35, Jesus says, they will know that you are my disciples if you do what? Love one another. So friends, one of the fruits of our faith ought to be love for others in personal and practical ways, not just an emotion that we feel, but actions that we do and sacrifices that we make. And so Jesus explains here in verse 40 that as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That is, we serve God by serving others. But notice he says the least of these, which bears a question. How is it that you relate to those who have the least to give to you? Those who are hard to love, maybe a little needy, frustrating or irritating in your life. On a Sunday morning, do you gravitate toward those that you really just naturally click with and relate to and trust that somebody else is going to make that person feel welcomed and loved? When you're here in our community and you're gathering in a coffee shop or a a baseball game, do you just go to the people that you know and fellowship with them or do you go introduce yourself to someone else to discern their need and to build those relationships? But now there's a stark and sobering contrast beginning in verse 41. He says, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer them these, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. You see, to the sheep he says, Come. To the goats he says, Go. To the sheep, he offers blessing. To the goats, he gives cursing. To the sheep, he welcomes them into his kingdom. To the goats, he condemns them to eternity in hell. Friends, this ought to sober us. First of all, for our own spirits, that we would examine ourselves to be sure that we are in the faith. Because the point here is, the sheep and the goats were virtually indistinguishable until the judge arrives and he lays things bare. But it also ought to give us an urgency for our friends and our neighbors and our family members. I fear that too often we can be lulled into complacency, thinking someone else will tell them that there's plenty of time for them to hear the message of the gospel. But every day there are people who are dying and going to a Christless eternity. I long for them to go with us begging them to repent that God might work in their heart and save them. But I want you to notice again, their condemnation is not because of some huge, massive, appalling sin like idolatry or murder, but rather they had been given opportunities to respond and they refused. One of the most sobering things about this story is that those who are shut out of the kingdom are shocked. They were confident they were in. They were sure that the king was going to turn to them and say, welcome, come enjoy the blessing. Instead they say, go. He says, go, for I never knew you. 
many well-meaning and respectable people will be condemned to hell because they knew about God and did things for God, but they never had a relationship with God. And so as we think about the final judgment, the central requirement, the essence of what it means to be watchful and prepared is to know God in repentance and faith, to trust in him and in him alone for your salvation. And then then as God indwells your spirit, it begins to do work in your heart. It transforms your relationships, your finances, your morality, your, your work and your integrity. And that as that happens, all those things will be evident that we are citizens of a different kingdom, that we are living for a different reward than just personal pleasure or temporary success. We are working to hear, well done, from our master, our Lord, and our Father. And so this morning, if you have never trusted in Christ, we would love to show you from God's word how you can know for certain that when you stand before him, that you are related to him, not based on your good deeds, but based on Christ's finished work. And if you're here this morning and you claim to be a Christian, I would encourage you as we sing these final songs to constantly evaluate your own heart, not out of fear and guilt and shame, but out of an earnest desire to live in a way that pleases the master until he comes again. Let's pray. Father, we want to live in watchful anticipation and we confess that many times we are lulled into complacency. We are selfish and short-sighted. And as a result, we may very well be like those foolish young women who think that we have plenty of time until you return, and we have plenty of things that we want to do. God, forgive us, convict us, and give us a sense of holy urgency that is grace-driven, not guilt-driven, that we might live to please you that we might live in response to the grace that you've poured into our lives and then pour into the lives of the least of those around us in personal and practical ways. God, thank you for the hope that we have that it doesn't depend on us, but depends on Christ. So as we respond here in worship, may you be honored and glorified, and may we be appropriately humbled in your presence. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.